welcome to the second episode of For the Record, From In Between. I'm very happy that you tuned in today into the second episode, United in Anger, Learning from the AIDS Activist Movement, ACT UP. I feel like there's so much that we can learn from that movement, especially when we are facing a pandemic such as COVID-19 today. I am here today, we are here today because we all have AIDS. We are here because we have AIDS in our hearts. All of us have lost people, friends, lovers, family members. We're here today, we're old, we're young, we're gay, we're straight. We're here today because we want to make a difference. We're here today because we care. One is that how, how ACT UP worked. That the, the reason it was successful because, was that there was a simultaneity of actions. That all different kinds of people were working on all different kinds of levels based on where they were at. And just as a very experienced political organizer, let me tell you, people can only be where they're at. But the thing about ACT UP was a true democracy, and everybody was doing what they needed to do. So if you needed to work with the black church, you work with the black church. If you needed to go to Chinatown, you worked in Chinatown. If you needed to work on needle exchange, that's what you did. People, and because it was self-selected, and it was going on simultaneously, that's how ACT UP was able to create change. Da -da -da -da. up New York and thank you all for coming you are witnessing the largest demonstration ever in front of the Food and Drug Administration we have an estimated 1500 people here already more will be coming as the day goes on I am here because the FDA is holding up drugs that are available for people and people are dying since we have been here today three people have died a person is dying every half hour and the second thing we learned is that it was the opposite of Occupy Wall Street, in that ACT UP had very specific demands. And the way it was constructed was very simple. If you read Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail, he lays out a strategy very similar to ACT UP's, although we were not aware of that. We came to the same conclusions. First, he, what he calls self-education. So ACT UP became their experts on AIDS. To the point where ACT UP was telling science what needed to be researched. They were telling, were saying what laws needed to be passed, what insurance policies needed to be passed. We were setting an agenda for everything that needed to change. We were the experts in every arena. We would develop the plan of how to get drugs to people who couldn't afford them and present those plans to the FDA. We did all the conceptualization. Then we would present, a, a, make a demand that was demand that was reasonable and doable, not something that that was impossible. 
This week of celebration, commemorating the 10th anniversary of the War of Liberation, is a time when all New Yorkers take pride in remembering the most peaceful revolution the world has known. It is time to look back on the events of a decade ago, to consider the progress of the past 10 years, and to look forward to the future. Hi there. This is Isabel from Radio Regatta, bringing you a little tune that you'll be hearing an awful lot of these days from the makers of our revolution. You might not be hearing it here, but you'll be hearing it everywhere else you go. Happy anniversary. Hi, I'm Sarah Schulman. I was born on 10th Street. I'm going to read something by Audre Lorde, who was a revolutionary New York writer, died in the 1980s. The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action by Audre Lorde, 1977. I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal, and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood, that the speaking profits me beyond any other effect. I was forced to look upon myself and my living with a harsh and urgent clarity that has left me still shaken but much stronger. Some of what I experienced during that time has helped elucidate for me much of what I feel concerning the transformation of silence into language and action. In becoming forcibly and essentially aware of my mortality and of what I wished and wanted for my life, however short it might be, priorities and omissions became strongly etched in a merciless light and what I most regretted were my silences. Of what had I ever been afraid? To question or to speak as I believed could have meant pain or death, but we all hurt in so many different ways all the time, and pain will either change or end. Death, on the other hand, is the final silence, and that might be coming quickly now, without regard for whether I had ever spoken what needed to be said or had only betrayed myself into small silences while I planned someday to speak or waited for someone else's words. I was going to die, if not sooner than later, whether or not I had ever spoken myself. My silences had not protected me. Your silence will not protect you. What are the words you do not have yet? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence? Perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears because I am a woman, because I am black, because I am lesbian, because I am myself, a black woman, warrior, poet, doing my work, come to ask you, 
Are you doing yours? And of course I am afraid because the transformation of silence into language and action is an act of self-revelation and that always seems fraught with danger. But my daughter, when I told her of our topic and my difficulty with it, said, tell them about how you're never really a whole person if you remain silent because there's always that one little piece inside you that wants to be spoken out and if you keep ignoring it, it gets madder and madder and hotter and hotter and if you don't speak it out one day, it will just up and punch you in the mouth from the inside. In the cause of silence, each of us draws the face of her own fear fear of contempt, of censure, of some judgment or recognition, of challenge or annihilation, but most of all I think we fear the visibility without which we cannot truly live. And that visibility which makes us most vulnerable is that which also is the source of our greatest strength. Because the machine will try to grind you into dust anyway, whether or not we speak. We can sit in our corners mute forever while our sisters and ourselves are wasted, while our children are distorted and destroyed. We can sit in our safe corners mute as bottles and we will still be no less afraid. Okay, thank you. Uno, dos, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. from ACT UP that would be instructive in this fight? There's a lot to learn from ACT UP. You know, it's, I'm an AIDS historian and I run the ACT UP Oral History Project. I've interviewed 187 surviving members of ACT UP over the last 15 years and all those interviews are available online at actuporalhistory.org for free. And one of the things that I've learned is that, interestingly, ACT UP used the exact same sequence of, of actions mm -hmm. that Martin Luther King describes in Letter from Birmingham Jail, but we had no idea that that's what he did as well. Basically, it's a system. You, you have to become highly educated on your issue so that you are the person who knows the most about it. You design the alternative so that you create the plan that you want and the program that you want and exactly the way you want it implemented so that you're not in an infantilized relationship to power where you're asking them for change. You show them what should be done. When they refuse you, then you do nonviolent civil disobedience in a manner that communicates to people through the media, and that's how you move forward. Your demands have to be reasonable, winnable, and doable. And if they are, and they're well designed, and you do what Dr. King called self-purification before you do civil disobedience, it is possible to move forward. And you have to have victories. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm actually a reformist. And movements like Occupy Wall Street were not for people like me because they had no demands. Mm -hmm. You know, 
historically, there's, there's two different kinds of radical histories in the United States. One are like total systems change movements, like utopian socialists in the 1840s, anarchists in the 20s, um, hippies in the 60s, Occupy. And then the other are like reform-oriented, you know, um, emancipation, ending slavery, women getting the vote, making abortion legal, uh, getting AIDS drugs. These are reform movements. The times when the, when the culture moves ahead the most significantly are when both are in place. And there's a dynamic relationship of change. Um, so I believe that you have to have reasonable, winnable demands and that movements need victories. If you don't have concrete victories, your movement will fall apart. And it has to be a party. Right. <laughs> and you have to be cute. And it has to be sexy, it has to be fun, or nobody will go. This coalition to unleash power. We are a diverse, nonpartisan group of individuals united in anger and committed to direct action to end the AIDS crisis. Those first few years, people were so busy digesting what was happening to them that politics only came up after five or six years of being knee-deep in a crisis. You know, the very first things we had to do was to try take care of the people who were sick and try and make sense of it for oneself. I went to ACT UP actually primarily, I think, as an outlet for my anger and my rage. My boyfriend died of AIDS, um, uh, and I was really, really upset that I couldn't do anything to help save his life. Act Up, Civil Disobedience Training. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote that the philosophy and practice of nonviolence has six basic elements. First, nonviolence is resistance to evil and oppression. It is a human way to fight. Second, it does not seek to defeat or humiliate the opponent, but to win his her friendship and understanding. Third, the nonviolent method is an attack on the forces of evil rather than against persons doing the evil. It seeks to defeat the evil and not the persons doing the evil and injustice. Fourth, it is the willingness to accept suffering without retaliation. Fifth, a nonviolent resistor avoids both external physical and internal spiritual violence, not only refuses to shoot but also to hate an opponent. The ethic of real love is at the center of nonviolence.
This was an excerpt from the song Sunset Village by Beverly Glenn Copeland, now known as Glenn Copeland. It was released on the album Keyboard Fantasies, and I find it to be such a moving and yeah, almost spiritual piece of art and music, and I thought it could fit very well at the end of this episode which overall seemed to be a quite moving episode as it turned out so i thought this could be good to end with it was released on keyboard fantasies which is the third studio album by the canadian musician and it was released on atlas records self-released on a cassette in 1986 i feel like this moving piece of music really resonates with me and the text by Martin Luther King that I read before. So I wish everyone a great week and that you find the strength and energy to listen to yourself and your body and your needs and also find the time for self-care and self-love and recovery, especially in these very draining times. Stay tuned for the third episode, Toxic Assemblages, Looking Through the Lenses of Queer Socialities, with Katya Lel on November 3rd, 2020. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.